have trouble seeing how the story of the Old Testament points to Jesus? Well, today we're going to look at a few ways we can see Jesus in the story so far. Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. We haven't said much about Jesus so far, have we? Nearly 20 episodes into the Bible and barely a mention of the name of Jesus. Well, this is on purpose, and we've done it as a reflection of the text of the Bible itself. You see, the Bible so far doesn't name Jesus. It describes Jesus. And more than that, it provides context for Jesus by showing us the need for someone to fix what's gone wrong in the world. And that's what we're going to discuss today. The description of Jesus we've learned so far and the context that demonstrates everyone's need for a Savior. So first, let's talk about the description of Jesus that we've learned so far in our jog through. The first description item is this. Many of the promises are a person. This is probably most familiar to you at this point in the podcast, that many of the promises are a person. We've talked about this from the very beginning of the Bible, starting in Genesis 3.15, when, in the midst of the cursing of the serpent, God provides a promise that the seed of the woman will do something to the serpent. And the point here is that this isn't just a happening that's being foretold about how God's going to do something to the serpent. No, this is about a person. The seed is a person, and so we'll know that a person will be instrumental in the plan of God. And we come to find out more about the genealogical identity of this person too. Soon we see that it will be a seed of Abraham, and then generations later, a seed from David. God doesn't want us to lose this thread through the Old Testament. It's not that merely something is coming, it's that someone is coming. Further, the promise of someone includes descriptions of what that someone will do. What will the seed of Eve do? He will crush the head of the serpent. What will the seed of Abraham do? He will bring blessing to all the nations of the world. What will the seed of David do? He will rule on David's throne in an everlasting kingdom. And there are many other descriptions of this person, this seed, that we had to skip over due to the pace of our jog through. But here's the point. The someone promised is going to do something involving the defeat of evil, the blessing of the world, and the rule over an everlasting kingdom. So far, the Bible is giving us these descriptions of this person who's coming. And this serves to build anticipation in the narrative. We're always wondering, when will this seed finally come? Alongside the descriptions, though, comes the context for the coming of the seed. The context is essentially all the places where there isn't a clear promise, but there is a clear message. Let's think about Israel for a moment. Called out of Egyptian slavery, miraculously delivered, and yet time and time again they complain, they grumble, they disobey, and they ultimately reject God by turning to fake gods. And that's just in the wilderness with Moses. Even after God gives them clear rules to follow and delivers them time and time again, they still follow this trajectory downward. They refuse to enter the land. Then upon finally entering it, they fail to drive out the nations as God has commanded. Then they reject God's rule over them and demand kings. And these kings, despite doing some great things for God, continue on the trajectory of the nation as they egregiously sin against him. This trajectory illustrates so many things for us that form a context for the coming of the seed, but we'll briefly mention two. First, humans can't wholly follow God's rules because humans have corrupt hearts. This is perhaps most apparent from the narrative, and it informs the speeches of Moses and Joshua to the nation. 
Remember, Moses and Joshua knew the hearts of the people, and they know that they will eventually rebel against the law and be cast out of the land of Canaan. They say so in their speeches. They know that the nation needs their hearts uncorrupted. The second thing the trajectory illustrates is this. God keeps his covenants and has mercy and grace on an undeserving people. What did we see every time Israel cried out to God? We saw him graciously provide for the people who certainly didn't deserve it. God is not merely a God of judgment. He's a God of mercy and grace who will respond when people turn to him in faith. These two observations help us understand more of the need that we have. Humans need not just moral reform. We need heart change. We need hearts that want to please God instead of reject him. And this need helps us to see what's coming in the future. This merciful and gracious God will solve not just the moral problem, but the heart problem behind the moral problem. But that's not all. We've also been given wonderful pictures in the narrative so far that provide additional context for this coming of the seed. Think about these three pictures. The Passover lamb, sacrificed in the place of the firstborn of each Israelite house in the final plague on Egypt. And the tabernacle tent that God used as a representation of his presence and his holiness in the midst of the nation of Israel. Finally, the temple in Jerusalem, with its imagery calling back to the garden itself. Now, as we think about the Passover lamb and the sacrificial system, those teach us that we need a substitute and an atonement covering for our sin. Approaching God's perfect holiness requires that our sins be covered by something else. That something else dies in our place to provide a covering for us. As we think about the tabernacle tent, we're taught that God wants to dwell among his people and not just above his people. Despite the sinfulness of people, God loves them and wants relationship with them. So much so that he provides a means of relationship through the priesthood and the sacrifices. Finally, as we think about the temple in Jerusalem, we're taught that the way back to the garden is God, that he is the one who can set things right again, and he is the one we can look to for hope of renewal and restoration. The promise of the seed is not separate from these pictures, but it's in the context of them. The seed has more to do than merely fulfill those clear promises. The seed must solve the other issues too, the corruption of the human heart, the need for a substitute, the need for an atonement covering for sin, the desire of God to dwell among the people, and the way back to the garden in renewal and restoration of all things. In the story so far, it's not made exactly clear yet exactly how the seed corresponds to these other needs, but we know that he must. Finally, one more piece of context. Faith is the key to righteousness. This takes us back to Genesis 15.6, where Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. The faith of Abraham is the prime example of faith in the Bible that's reiterated in several of the other people we've talked about. A faith that God will accomplish his plan of salvation despite how things look on the outside. A son born to a hundred-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife? Done. Getting hundreds of thousands of people across the Red Sea as they flee Pharaoh's chariots? Done. Bread for millions in the wilderness for 40 years? Done. The defeat of the fortified city of Jericho by marching around the city? Done. Using 300 men to defeat an army of 135,000? Done. 
Using a young, small, armorless David against Goliath, the experienced enemy warrior? Done. The narrative teaches us that against all odds, God will accomplish his purposes, and that people who believe in God can become part of those purposes. And not only will he accomplish those purposes with the faithful, but he will somehow grant them righteousness. Somehow, the perfect moral righteousness of God is transferred to people, not because of what they do, but because they have faith in God. And this isn't exclusive to Israelites, even in the Old Testament, as we get glimpse after glimpse of Gentiles having this sort of faith too. The story so far provides tastes of what's coming and anticipations of the coming of a man unlike any other. It gives us descriptions of this seed and the context for his coming. He will be from Eve, Abraham, and David. He will bless the nations, speak the words of God, and rule over Israel. He will somehow provide a perfect sacrifice that will finally cleanse people from their sins permanently, and he will somehow get us back to the garden. He will make it so that God is with us, not just above us. And for our part, we know that faith will be a key to the righteousness that God requires for close fellowship with him. A faith that somehow leads to a new righteous heart freed from sin slavery. Where's Jesus in the story so far? Well, it's not always obvious as we read, but the story is painting a picture for us, progressively adding detail after detail, and nearly every passage has some clue about the coming one who will set things right. In God's design, he shows the world its need before he shows the world its solution. In some ways, the story so far is like eating little bits of salt. Every promise and every clue is more salt. Salt that peaks our taste buds, but parches us at the same time. And we'll see that by the end of the Old Testament, what we want is water. Cool, pure, bubbling spring water. Water so good that it's life to us. Free, serene water that satisfies every need, fulfills every promise, and brings life to every person thirsty enough to receive it. Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. Are you enjoying the podcast? One of the best ways for the show to grow is for you to share it with a friend. Will you do that today? We'd love to help more people understand the life-changing story and message of the Bible. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2022